Welcome to the Mortification of Spin, the regular podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Thank you for joining us for a casual conversation about things that count. I am your host, Carl Truman, uh, Professor of Church History at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, and I'm here with my co-host, Todd Pruitt, Pastor of Church of the Saviour in Wayne, Pennsylvania. Remember that the Mortification of Spin is the podcasts of other gospel alliances, the spaghetti westerns are to soap operas. <laughs> if you are one of the bold and the beautiful, or one of the young and the restless, you will find nothing of interest here. <laughs> but if you are one of the bald, the bad, or the ugly, welcome home. Here Hang is Ray. Here is rest for your receding hairline and comfort for that face that only a mother could love. Well, Todd, having uh, given you such a good intro there. On, yeah, thank you. Uh, your I, general aesthetic appeal. Um, I've, yeah, I, I don't know exactly how to feel about that, that, that introduction. I, I, although I will say in the Spaghetti Western, the hero generally had a very rugged, good look about him. And neither you and I are neither rugged nor good looking, yeah, so that I, I is hard. I wasn't thinking of us as the heroes. Actually, <laughs> I was thinking we're we're the guys who are carried off in those roughly hewn wooden boxes in right, the final scene. Right, the Lee Van Cleef character or somebody like that. Uh, sure, yeah, I understand that. Well, one of the things uh, I wonder to to talk about today is you and I are both pastors of churches. We inevitably have to do quite a bit of thinking about what exactly is a church. How should a church be run? Uh, who should be running the church? Uh, and the place, of course, where you and I instinctively turn for that kind of information is not the sociological manuals or the latest trendy analyses of culture that one finds uh, round and about, useful as those things can be in certain circumstances. For you and I as pastors uh, in the Reformed tradition, it's the Bible. And In the Bible, of course, it is above all the pastoral epistles of the Apostle Paul. Here is Paul writing at a time when he realizes that his life and ministry are coming to an end. And of course, his life and ministry has more significance than than merely being his own life and ministry. He is an apostle. He's living during the apostolic age. As his life comes to a close, so the life of other apostles is coming to a close. And he knows that the church is facing a significant transitional moment, a moment from what we might describe as as charismatic apostolic authority, the men who knew Jesus, the men who met Jesus, the men who uh, lived alongside Jesus, or like Paul, met him as, as one, if you like, born out of time. Authority is passing from this first generation of men who were taught by the Lord himself. It's passing to a subsequent generation. And of course, beyond that, to generations after them who won't even have direct connections to the apostles. So Paul is having to wrestle with the issue of what does the church look like in coming generations? What do we have to do in order to make sure that the gospel is maintained and passed on in a stable and orthodox form from generation to generation? And Paul outlines that in his pastoral epistles. Uh, 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus. He's not writing into neutral situations, of course. He's not sitting down and... This is an emergency message from Modification of Spin. We need all your donations. If you would like this podcast to continue, please visit modificationofspin.org to donate. Our website is modificationofspin.org. 
Timothy and Titus. He's not writing into neutral situations, of course. He's not sitting down and thinking, you know, it would be great for me to write a, a pastoral epistle today. He is addressing very specific issues that are occurring in the church at this particular point in time. But in so doing, he's using it as an opportunity to lay out a blueprint for subsequent churches. And the two aspects of that are a form of church government, the appointment of of overseers and deacons, and the impressing on Timothy the need for a form of sound words. And it's those issues, we're only, of course, we're only going to skim the surface of them today, but uh, it's those issues that uh, I want to look at today. So first, let's spend uh, a few moments thinking about the the qualifications for overseers. Well, obviously there are the, uh, the, the, the character qualities which are essential to the life and the witness, uh, the credibility of, of an elder. Um, and then you have those qualities which relate directly to, you, you mentioned Paul's words, Timothy, this passing along of, of a sound pattern of words. And, and I'm taken by that phraseology by Paul, this pattern of sound words, meaning the content of our faith. And it is the elders who are entrusted with that responsibility. Paul never assumes that the church is going to be orthodox from one generation to the next, but it is something that has to be worked at and labored over and guarded by those men who are entrusted with that pattern of sound words. And so Paul makes it very clear that the elder must be a man who teaches, not just able to teach, but it's assumed that he will be teaching um, in the church. We see this in the qualifications that he writes to Timothy, as well as to Titus, where he gets, it may be said, even more explicit in Titus chapter 1, that that the elder must be able to instruct in sound doctrine. And not only that, but to silence those who contradict uh, the sound doctrine. Do you think that that requires that the elder must be able to preach, or do you see that as having a, a broader application? Well, at one point, I think I would have said broader application. And I don't want to be dogmatic on this. But I think that an elder must be publicly tested in his knowledge of sound doctrine and his willingness to, uh, to contend for sound doctrine. And I think it's probably a good idea that a way to publicly test this man is to have him preach. Uh, there's something about that responsibility. Now, uh, again, I, 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 I don't want to be dogmatic because I can't take, to, take you to a specific passage of Scripture that says this man must be preaching. But he must be tested in such a way so that we understand that he has an ability to teach. All all of the character qualities of an elder are elsewhere in Scripture um, commended to all Christians. All Christians uh, should be gentle, and and, and all Christian fathers ought to be managing their household well, etc., etc. We all ought to strive to be thought of well by outsiders. But it is this issue of being able to teach and instruct in sound doctrine that is the distinctive mark of the elder. It is, if you like, what sets an elder apart from a good, faithful, godly layman in the church, this issue of teaching and instructing in sound doctrine. And so if we don't get that right, if we allow men to become elders who are not able to teach the Bible faithfully, instructing in sound doctrine as they see it clearly put forth in the scripture and then willing 
to contend for it to the extent that they will silence those who refute it, then he may indeed be a, a godly man, a man that you would want dozens of in your own church. He's just not an elder. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. It seems to me that if we were to generalize about the characteristics of an elder, what Paul is looking for is somebody who models in every aspect of his life that to which all Christians should aspire. Yes. The moral qualities, the, the household management qualities, very, very important. And then the teaching aspect comes in because the purpose of an elder is to model in his belief yes. that to which all Christian believers should aspire. And how is he going to model that? Well, he's going to model it in the way he articulates his belief and the way that he he confounds, refutes error. Correct. So that's uh, an extremely important point. Mm-hmm. Underlying, of course, a lot of what Paul says is that he, he's really assuming that the elder is going to be an older guy. And mm. that, I think, is where uh, we might feel the pinch today. We live in a society where, for various reasons, youth is held up as as the ideal. Mm-hmm. Uh, nobody, well, you might be an exception to this, Todd, but nobody goes to the shops to buy the same clothes that they were wearing <laughs> 20 or 30 years ago. Right, uh, <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. Nobody, nobody, you know, nobody has plastic surgery in order to make themselves look older. Right. I do remember a time when I, when I started teaching at the University of Nottingham, I think I was uh, 24 when I started there, 25, and... Uh, that's quite a young age to be teaching sure. at a university. So I would deliberately wear a suit <laughs> so that uh, people knew that I wasn't a student, if nothing else. I mean, I do remember being turfed out of the, uh, a staff room once because the, the porter thought that I was uh, a student visiting for an interview and had wandered into the wrong place. But, <laughs> I've but, seen a picture of you when you were in your 20s, and you looked like you were about 12. Yeah, so. I'd, uh, I'd got a real Steve Nichols thing going on there. <laughs> that's right, that's um, right. But uh, Paul is really, he, he really envisages, I think, older men, men of moral mm-hmm. integrity and maturity, men of intellectual right. integrity and maturity. That's very counter of uh, what we have today. Right. And of course, he also says that the individual is meant to be of, of good reputation with those who are outside, which speaks of somebody who's meant to be a worthwhile, mm-hmm. worthy member of the wider community to which they belong. Not the Christian community, right. but those outside the church. And that, by and large, is something that is possessed only by somebody of, of a certain amount of, of chronological maturity. So one of the, the things that, if, if I were to express a, a concern about, say, the, the young, restless, and reform movement as it's manifested itself over the last five or six years, is the priority it places on young people. Sure. Uh, there are reasons for that. Young people tend to have a very slick and competent understanding of, of the modern media world. And that's by and large how you get your message out today. So the, the very mode of communication shows a bias towards the young. The aesthetic of modern society is preoccupied with, with youthfulness. Mm-hmm. Paul, though, is preoccupied with maturity. Sure. And that, I think, is, is an extremely important note to strike. And that brings me to, to one area I want to particularly zero in on, on Paul's qualifications for overseer. In 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3 uh, and verse 2, he says, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. Mm-hmm. Now, what Paul is not saying there is that the, the elder must be married. Right. I think what he's saying is if the elder's married... He must be a, a, a one-woman man. He's got to be faithful to his wife. Mm-hmm. I was very perturbed, depressed by a conversation I had with a friend recently 
and we were talking about the some of the guys, the the big name guys who are heading up uh, the modern reformed revival. Good guys, guys of good public reputation. And I asked him about one of them, and uh, he didn't answer my question. But what he said was, and this was eloquent. He said, "You know what depresses me most?" He said that the closer I get to these guys, the more I realize what train wrecks their marriages and family mm. lives are. Marriage. Marriage is what brings us together today. Marriage, that blessed arrangement, that dream within a dream, then love, true love, will follow you forever. I treasure your love. Under you, Princess Barakwa. Man and wife, say man and wife. Man and wife. And that struck me powerfully to think, you know, our marriages, they're important to our qualifications for ministry. I've been preaching through Malachi recently, and one of the things that, that the prophet slams the people of Israel for doing is, is treading lightly on marriage, that the Israelites are marrying outside of Israel, and they're also trading in their, the wives of their youth for younger, cooler models yeah. as they get older. And it struck me that there's a theological significance to marriage that sometimes we, we don't get. We see the imperative. Yes, Christ loved the church in this way, and therefore we as husbands are to love our wives that way as well. We don't sometimes draw the obvious implication from that, and that is... The way you treat your wife is actually a reflection of how you think about Christ, mm. that there is a real sting in the tail of that imperative, and that the, the polemic that Malachi engages in is, is a long polemic. I think about how the children of Israel have lost sight of the character of God and how this manifests itself in various ways. And when I see Paul's qualifications for eldership, I think, you know, family life, the management of households. And the way you treat your wife, absolutely central to Paul's understanding of office bearing in the church. And that is a real rebuke and a challenge to men like yourself and Mm -hmm. myself for Mm -hmm. how we treat our wives. And I think when I see how many big conferences some of these guys are at, one after another, and they've got wives and kids, you have to ask yourself, are such men modeling the kind of relationship between husband and wife that Paul is assuming is going to be utterly basic for somebody heading up the church. Yeah, I've thought about that a lot because simply serving as a pastor of a local church, if you're doing your work as a pastor the way the biblical pattern seems to, uh, to indicate, it's challenging enough just to do that job and look after your wife and children at the same time. That alone is challenging enough. And, and one of the things I would say to young men entering pastoral ministry or men considering uh, the call to be an elder in their local church is they'd better count the cost, the potential cost to their family, because it takes a lot of time to invest in the local church. I think about Paul 
I think about the fact that when he gave his qualifications as an apostle, which included things like the, the 39 lashes and being beaten with rods and being stoned and shipwrecked, he added on top of all of that the anxiety for caring for the church. So he would, he would, in the same breath, if you like, classify the anxiety of being a pastor with being beaten with rods. Now, that's hard for a married man with children to carry that sort of a burden. That's hard. And the lay elder is taking onto himself some of those responsibilities. He's going to spend less time with his wife than if he weren't an elder. He's going to spend less time with his children than if he weren't an elder. And how's he going to navigate that? How's he going to be faithful to this? I think about Paul's instructions in Ephesians 5. He's unpacking the implications of the gospel, and he goes to marriage. And relating the body of Christ to marriage and and the Lord Jesus presenting to himself the beautiful body of Christ one day and comparing that to what a husband does for his wife, that he he is to contribute to her Christ-likeness. He is to contribute to her beauty in that sense. He is to serve her so well and sacrifice for her so willingly that it contributes to her Christ-likeness. Well, that takes time. That takes deliberate action. That takes love and tenderness and sacrifice. And that means there's a whole lot of things we're going to have to say no to. Yeah, and I think we have to model to our churches in our marriages that which we hope other marriages in the church will aspire to. That is not to say, of course, you know, well, you and I both punched above our weight (laughs) <laughs> in terms of uh, the ladies we married. Absolutely. Uh, wonderful. I've enjoyed a wonderful marriage. Mm-hmm. Uh, still as in love with my wife now as I was on the day I married her. It's important for me as a pastor, I think, to be visible with my wife in church on a Sunday. Yes. I like the fact that, well, I've, you know, I'm in a small enough church that everybody can see how I treat my wife. Right. Everybody will have an opinion on how Truman treats his wife. They will know that I'm not perfect. But they will also know, I hope, that from the way my wife and I respond to each other, we are in love with each other, Mm -hmm. we respect each other, and we're trying to capture and project something of what Paul says in Timothy here. And I would expand that and say, so often, particularly for guys who are out on the road a lot, going headlining at conference after conference after conference and absent from their wife weekend after weekend after weekend. It's not just avoiding sexual sin that you've got to think about. It's not just making sure that you block the dodgy movie channel when you get into the hotel or that you've got the proper software set up on your Mm -hmm. laptop computer so when you're lying around bored in the hotel, you don't go to places where you, you shouldn't go. I think you also have to ask yourself, how am I demonstrating my love for my wife, to my congregation. Mm -hmm. Uh, I remember a few years ago hearing about a pastor who stood up in front of a crowd of over 10,000 people in Australia and talked about how he and his wife had slept together before they got married Mm. and they had repented of it. My instinctive reaction to hearing that was, you know, that man disrespected his wife in front of 10,000 people. My wife would not even want me acknowledging that we'd slept together since we got married (laughs) uh, in front of a crowd of five people, let alone before we got married in front of a crowd of 10,000 people. So again, coming back to 
we need to make sure when we're thinking about eldership that the issue of marriage and modeling Christ-like marriage as an elder is absolutely central Mm -hmm. to what we look for when we're appointing elders and what we need to think about most in in our own lives. Right, right. has so much to do with our public ministry. And I remember being told as a uh, new staff person in a church right out of college, I was a youth pastor, and I remember being told by the pastor of that church that if I don't take good care of my family, it will not only damage them, but it will shipwreck my ministry. Well, we know that. We know that intellectually. We understand that. But I know what it's like to observe men, men who I respect, whose wives are visibly not happy with them. And it does, for legitimate reasons, change the way you look at them and their ministry. If they cannot love their wife to the extent that she knows they love her and honor her, then how can they expect to help any other man love and honor his wife? How can they be respected as they stand before the congregation with the word of God? And as you mentioned earlier, nobody's looking for perfection uh, this side of heaven. But I'm becoming more and more convinced the older I get, and my wife and I have been married for almost 23 years. We were married the same year that you and your wife were married. Within weeks of each other, Absolutely. I think, yeah. And I, I can honestly say that um, I, I know my wife better than I've ever known her. I love my wife more than I've ever loved her. And I can also say with, with very clear conviction that it would be easy to shipwreck my marriage not just with the adultery things, we all know that, but with six months of neglect, a year of neglect, and for, and for a man in pastoral ministry, that's not hard to imagine because we, are, we can be so easily distracted. And I wonder what it would do to the soul of my wife to have to sit under my preaching every week and know that I don't love her well. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it's, it's very important. I often say to students when asking me about calls to the ministry, the key thing is who you're married to and is she on board of the project. Right. You know, if your wife is not 100% behind what you're doing, it's going to be an absolute disaster mm-hmm. uh, because you're going to get criticism, you're going to get all kinds of ghastly stuff coming your way. And if your wife is not passionately committed right. to the vision of ministry that you have, then you've got real problems. I also think there's an element, I mean, I, for myself, my wife brings things to, to my ministry that, that frankly I don't have. It's hard sure. for you to believe, I, I know, Todd, but, um, <laughs> but I, you know, when I s- recently was sitting by the bed of, a, of an old lady in our congregation who's, who's ill at the time, and uh, my wife came on the visit with me, she can talk to an old lady mm. who's lying ill on right. bed. I'm tongue-tied. I can read the Bible. Right. I can point the lady to Christ. I can pray with her. I'm comfortable doing that. But in terms of the the regular chit-chat that means so mm-hmm. much to people, I'm tongue-tied at that right. point. Right. Having married the right woman is a, is a, is a great uh, boon to right. one's ministry. I think that the sum of the parts yeah. is less than the sum of the whole yeah. in a good pastoral marriage. Absolutely. And, and I, I also think... Knowing your wife, um, we, we've both married women, and we are fortunate in this. We've both married women who like us, they love us, um, but they're not a part of our fan club. Oh, yeah. And there's something to be said 
that is so important for for a man in pastoral ministry to be married to a woman who's very supportive, who loves us fiercely, um, but who's not afraid to call us out when we've done something silly or foolish or, or thoughtless. Um, that's important. Yeah. And, and I cannot tell you how many times my wife has helped me come back to reality in, in, a, in a lot of moments. Yes, my, my, I've used this anecdote on a number of occasions, but I do remember a few years ago preaching on 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and I mm-hmm. talked about how the amazing thing about the church in Corinth was not that there was sexual immorality in the church, but there was a church there in the first place. And I made a comment to the effect of, you know, the people in this church were probably the first century equivalent of pole dancers in this church. <laughs> right, and right. a gentleman came up to me afterwards and thanked me for my sermon and then said, I'm, I'm so looking forward to telling my eight-year-old daughter what a pole dancer is <laughs> uh, over lunch. And my wife, she tore me off a strip for that. Yeah, yeah. And I thought to myself, yeah, you know, she's right. Yeah. I, I, I wasn't doing it for a cheap laugh. I, I, I was doing it because I wanted to indicate what scum had been right. converted in Corinth. Right. But she had a point. Sure. That I need to think as a parent, for example. So I, I think uh, wives bring tremendous wisdom Absolutely. to our pastoral ministry at point. My wife has rebuked me for inappropriate use of language sometimes, uh, for flippancy. Hard mm-hmm. that is to imagine as well, that I occasionally am a bit, a bit flippant <laughs> sure. about serious things. Yeah. Uh, I don't tell my wife about everything I get up to because I'd be in a whole lot more trouble, uh-huh. I'm sure. But uh, but it's, it's critical to the balance of a man's ministry. Absolutely. Particularly to his preaching as well. I would say that some of the, the, the most egregious examples of bad preaching I've heard are irredeemable because the wife is a fan of that person's preaching. Mm. And it doesn't matter how mm. much you say to them, you know, you need yeah. to change this, that, or the other. They'll go home to the wives and the wives will say, you know, you're a genius. You don't need to listen <laughs> to what that guy says. Right. Just carry on doing what you're doing. Right. A wife who has critical distance from her husband, absolutely vital. Yeah, I, I'm I'm married to that unusual wife, and I believe you are as well. Who, not the same unusual not wife. Not the same unusual. Right. Just in case, no, nothing weird is going yes. on here, people. Yeah. Uh, I think our wives have a similar personality in that when I'm criticized, hard as that is to imagine, when I'm criticized as a pastor, um, my wife is supportive of me, but she will also she's willing to help me hear to see if there's anything legitimate in that criticism. I know men in ministry whose wives would never do that for them. And as much as I want my wife, every time I'm criticized, to say, Todd, they're full of it, there's nothing wrong with you, that would feel really good in the moment. It just wouldn't serve me well. And I'm, I'm married to a woman who is willing to say, you know, Todd, there might be something to that. So I, we're talking about this because if you're a pastor, if you're being considered as an elder, um, if you are consider, if you are a church or a pastor considering someone for an elder, you might want to do a little homework on their marriage. It matters. It matters to their ministry. It matters to how they're going to lead the church. Well, you have been listening to The Mortification of Spin with Todd Pruitt and Carl Truman. We're so glad that you were here to join us. Hope that the conversation has been helpful. 
uh, for you. Hope it's been challenging. Hope it's been edifying. Uh, You can visit us at mortificationofspin.org. And if you're looking for a ministry that is worth some support, uh, we would encourage you to consider the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals that makes this broadcast possible, that does so much uh, to help the church, to help pastors, to help equip pastors. It's a wonderful ministry. We would encourage you to consider giving to it. Again, thank you for joining us on the Mortification of Spirit.